Good morning, everybody. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34, verses 12 through 16. I commend to your reading the background there as it relates to Hebrews freeing Hebrew slaves. Starting with verse 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself make a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. The New Testament reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 4, beginning with verse 14 and concluding with verse 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thus concludes the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we are your people a people called to prayer, a people called to pray for each other. We want to uplift Nick and Shannon Peterson, their family, as they have suffered the loss of their home. We do not yet know the full extent of the damages, but we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would comfort them, that your grace would be upon them, and that you would be with us as we seek ways to help them in their time of need. We do have a prayer of praise. We are thankful for Amanda and her upcoming marriage. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work within their lives, drawing them closer to you, and that you would be the focal point so that love can truly abound. Dear Lord, we pray for the work of the members of the pastor search team as they undertake the process of seeking our next senior pastor. We pray that you would bless their efforts to your glory and our good. Now, Heavenly Father, tracking Romans chapter 6, 
We thank you for the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the efficacious call of the Holy Spirit, bringing us into your family, united in Jesus in a death like his, and surely united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin, the end of which is death. We thank you that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, with its fruit being sanctification and its end eternal life. We thank you for your free gift, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please be with Jerry as he brings your word and his exposition for our edification. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we've got a lot going on. We were talking about that last uh, Sunday when we talked about justification. We went into God's courthouse. And there we found that we were not only uh, innocent until proven guilty, we were guilty when we walked, before we walked in the door. No doubt about it. And how we're going to get out of this? Well, God can just forgive us. Yeah, but then what about his holiness and justice and our desire for justice? And we found out that God solved that problem by himself offering the sacrifice for sin. His only begotten son who said, I am willing to pay that price. And my reward will be a people whom I have redeemed and who will love me and praise me throughout all of eternity. And not just as slaves, but as brethren, as members of my mystical body and that is the great doctrine of justification and the basis of the protestant reformation actually the basis of the church itself if that doctrine if that understanding of forensic justification of us being justified by the righteousness of christ and not our own righteousness is lost then the church itself is lost and it's what distinguishes you know, true churches from false churches. How do they teach and preach about justification? But Martin Luther himself, who got the ball rolling by a rediscovery and reapplication and reproclamation of justification by faith, said justification by faith is a con by faith is a concept hard to accept and hard to hold on to. Hard to accept and hard to hold on to. It's hard to accept because we want to justify ourselves and establish our own righteousness because having to accept Christ's righteousness mean that, means that we have none of our own. And that for a fallen, self-centered human being is very hard to do. So it's hard to accept, but it's hard also to hold on to because we still have that same old nature alongside our new nature. We accepted Christ. We have been born from above and have a new nature, but the new nature is still wiggling around in there. And the same nature that finds it hard to accept justification by faith as the basis of coming to God through Christ finds it just as hard to live that way to live that way, to live grace justification rather than self-justification. 
And those are the two things that we are prone to, self-condemnation and self-justification. And we're going to talk about this morning, it's actually a little harder than talking about justification, because justification is a theological term, it's a courtyard, it's forensic, a courtroom, it's forensic. We can describe the pros and cons and the goings and comings in an objective manner. Now we're talking about living out justification by faith, which gets down into the dirty, gritty affairs of daily life. It affects our minds and our hearts and also how we relate to other people, particularly in a church. Is this going to be a church that's characterized by self-justification or grace justification? Well, that starts with people who are either living by self-justification or living by grace justification. And I've given you some quotes in the bulletin. You'll find them on page two. And this was from the Puritan William Fenner. He says, as we sin daily, yes, we do. If we say that we don't sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. We still sin. As we sin daily, so he justifies daily. And we must daily go to him for justification. Now that's, it's hard for us to keep going back as a beggar. That's why it hurts our pride. Justification is an ever-running fountain, and therefore we cannot look to have all the water at once. We have to keep going back to create a lifestyle, an attitude of continually being justified. And Paul ran into this in Corinth, And Jesus said in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And Paul quoting what they were, some of the people in Corinth were saying, all things are lawful for me. My sins are forgiven. The law no longer has control over me. So all things are lawful. I can do anything I want. And Paul said, well, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so we're talking this morning about not being self-condemning and self-justifying, but entering to the freedom that Christ has given us. That process is laid out well in the book of Galatians, which is where we will be putting down roots this morning. So if you want to turn to Galatians, it's on page 1534 in the preacher's Bible. You've got an outline there before you. Let's talk about lifestyle or culture. Let's talk about it individually and let's talk about it corporately. Philippians, justification for me, first, self-condemnation. We, strangely enough, were able to do two things at one time. 
or different people do different things or we do different things with these two things. We self-condemn or we self-justify. Those are the two sinful responses to our standing before God. And it's possible apparently to even believe in justification by faith and live in justification by self. This happened in Galatia, and we're going to look at it. But first, notice this. Philippians 3.9 said, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, by keeping the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness outside myself that's called alien righteousness or foreign righteousness. It's not my own that I can offer it to God in self-justification. Justification in the Bible, in God's way of thinking, is the justification from the righteousness that Christ has. He became sin, he took our sins upon him, and in exchange we receive his righteousness. We are baptized into his body when we become a Christian, and we take on the characteristics, we receive the inheritance that he has received, which is his righteousness. Now let me show you how this is played out. I've given you a long quote on the next page, page eight, from John Bunyan. You remember this Puritan who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress and all that stuff? And because of his background as a slave trader, he had a tender conscience. He lived the rest of his life conscious of the pain and suffering and death he had inflicted upon others. And it plagued and some of us have tender consciences. It might be our personality. It might be the environment in which we were reared. We might have had a loving home. We might have had a stressful home. We might find it hard to accept the concept of a loving and kind father. We might not have ever had a loving and kind father. We might not have ever had a father or a mother. We might have grown up with someone else trying to establish their identity by diminishing and demeaning our identity. And that created impressions, cracks, crevices, dents, and our personality and our hearts that we still bear with us. Put together that with the sinfulness of being conscious that we fall short of the glory of God, that we are sinners. And that tender conscience can be hurtful, harmful, even debilitating. John Bunyan had that, and here's how he dealt with it. Page 8, 
One day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, three or four hundred years ago, they didn't have all our emotive psychological language. What's a dash on a conscience? Well, if you dash some salt on your food, there it lays. You can see it white or pepper. There it is. It's a stain. I had a stain on my conscience, fearing lest all was not right between me and God. Suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven, not in yourself. And I thought as well that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness beside God, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, John lacks my righteousness in himself, for his righteousness is right here before me in the person of Jesus. I also saw it was not my good frame of heart, again, not the way I felt, that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, but my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday and today and forever. I change, but he doesn't. It doesn't matter what righteousness I have. My righteousness is in Christ right there next to God. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed? The slave metaphor, when he was a slaver. Here I lived for some time, sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, I thought, Christ, Christ, there was nothing but Christ before my eyes. If you have a tender conscience, good we do sin and that's why on most Sundays we have a corporate confession of sin not that that's the one all and do all that is a corporate confession but it's a weekly reminder that we need to confess our sins as our conscience tells us that we have sinned if we confess our sins he is just and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we don't have to do that once a week. That's not a magic formula. You don't have to wait. In fact, when I was in campus ministry, we'd teach students, fess them and don't bunch them. Confess your sins as the Holy Spirit brings them to you through your conscience. Confess right then, right there, on the spot. Lord, I blew it again. Would you forgive me? Thank you that Jesus died for that sin and I'm forgiven. Amen. So if you have a tender conscience, good. But if that conscience sometimes drags you down, remember that it's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. It's outside of ourselves. It doesn't matter how good we feel or how bad we feel. Our righteousness is standing right next to God. And whenever he sees us sin, Jesus pleads and says, 
here's my righteousness in place of that sin. Our standing with God, our acceptance with God is never diminished because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's have done with self-condemnation because we do what Judas did. We say that our sin is too great for God to forgive. It's too great for sin's death to cover. We selfishly, self-centeredly, self-righteously diminish the very value of the death of Christ and his righteousness when we let ourselves be overcome with self-condemnation. Preach to yourself righteousness, justification by faith. Drink at that well every day. Develop a lifestyle, a condition, an environment of grace justification not self-condemnation. And the reason that's important is because step two, if we are living by self-condemnation, we have to find a way to self-justify. And the quickest way to do that is by diminishing another person so that we can feel more righteous. We find a way to be self-righteous and that inevitably results in another person not being as righteous as we are. And by comparison, we feel better. That is the death knell for a church. That environment is not welcoming, accepting, or invigorating. That environment is death and disease, not health and heart warm welcome. There's the difference. Let me show you how this works out if you would turn to the book of Galatians. Now, many of Paul's letters can be confusing because he's responding to a situation. And we don't always know what the situation is. And sometimes he's actually responding to a letter where they ask questions. Or he's responding to something someone said. Like I just read you this thing from Second uh, uh, Corinthians. And some translation puts it in quotes because he's quoting a Corinthian. All things are lawful to me but not all things are helpful. That's his response. All things are awful for me. That's what you say, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. So in Galatians, if you read it, it's an emotional letter because Paul had led these people to the Lord and he had taught them about grace justification. He had taught them not to be self-condemning. He had taught them not to be self-justifying. And then some people had come in behind him, teachers and preachers, and they had said, no, that's not how you're justified before God. 
you are justified before God by doing A, B, C, D, the things we do. And if you will do these things and become like us, you can be justified. You know you're justified because you did A, B, C, D. And then you will become like us, but of course we'll be your leaders because we're the examples of ABCD, because it's the kind of thing we like doing, and you will be subservient to us. But wait a minute, Paul taught us that our justification was in Jesus, and we didn't have to do ABCD. Well, that's because Paul is a people pleaser. Instead of standing for the righteousness of God and telling you, how your hair has to be done and how you dress and how you eat and how you sing your music and, and, and how you do your meals and how you wash your hands and which days are holy and which days you have to be. Instead of doing all that, he just wanted to make you feel good and instead of enforcing God's law on you, he just wanted to be a people pleaser and say, hey, you don't need any of that, just follow me. You see Paul responding to this, where you look first of all at um, Galatians 1, verse 10. Am I try now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ because I'm being persecuted by the Romans and the Jews. So if I just keep my Jewish faith and keep my Jewish legalism, then the Jews would accept me and so would the Romans. He said, I'm not winning by teaching grace justification, I'm being persecuted. He said, think about it. Now, this is important to notice because Paul was a people pleaser. He was a people pleaser. He, I think, uh, I have this quote in, uh, was it in Romans? I'll let that go and come back to it. It was in Romans where Paul said, look, this meat sacrificed to idols. There's no such thing as idols. There's only one God. So you can eat all the idol meat you want to, because there's no idols. But you've got some young Christians here, and they've always sacrificed idols. And now they can't touch that meat sacrificed idol, because it hurts their conscience. So why are you going to make your brother stumble over a piece of meat? He said, I'm never going to eat meat again if it makes my brother stumble. You see, when it came to pleasing himself or pleasing someone else, Paul always chose to please the other person. But when it came to pleasing God or pleasing men, he always chose pleasing God. See the difference? If it's my preference or your preference, I'm going to defer to your preference. 
But if it's God's preference and your preference, I'm going to defer to God. Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Now, here's the question. How do you tell the difference between a good fight and a bad fight? Paul said, I fought the good fight, but I'm not going to fight over meat, but I'm going to fight over the gospel. You see the difference? If it glorifies Christ to defer to you, that's what I'm going to do. But if it glorifies Christ to be true to his gospel, that's what I'm going to do. And that's half our job in the church, isn't it? Figure out which is a good fight. In fact, I'll tell you a funny thing the way it goes. I go to a church often as a transition pastor. Someone said one time, well, I hope you're successful. I said, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to make good recommendations. That's my job. But whether or not they're all accepted, that's on the congregation. So I go to the congregation and I start seeing things and I start making recommendations and suggestions. And some are like, hey, that's a good idea, let's try that. And some are like, eh, we've always done it this way. So what do I do? I get out my test kit. If it turns blue, it's a good fight. If it turns red, it's a bad fight. And I take a drop and I put it in the solution. It turns red. It's a bad fight. It's not my preference versus your preference. If that's what you prefer, then do it. You know? But if it turns blue, this is a gospel issue. We've got to talk about this. Is it a gospel issue or is it a preference issue? In a church I was in, every seven years, they would, you've been in church seven years, they would give you a sabbatical. And three months paid, do what you want to do, and 5% of your salary package to go do. And someone, uh, like on a, you know, a, a Reformation tour of England or something like that. And Sandy and I came along and I said, I've been here 10 years, I've been here seven years, I've been the uh, executive pastor of this church. I am dying to know what is going on around. We had three of the top ten fastest growing churches in America in the Raleigh-Durham area. I said, I have to be here every Sunday. I can't. I don't know what's going on around me. I said, we're going to spend three months, well, two months. We took another month and took a Reformation tour. And I'm going to visit other churches. You're going to do what? I'm going to visit other churches. And find out what they're doing. Find out what the competition is. Two things happened. Well, they thought that's kind of a weird deal. But when I came back for the next three years, every time something came up in the church, they said, Jerry, how are those other churches handling this? How are they handling it? Most of the time I'd say they're not. they got a bigger problem as we do. The other thing was I went to these other churches, you know, Bible-believing, evangelical churches, and... They were weird. They just did things in a weird way. Everything about the service was weird, wrong. 
They didn't know how to worship right. They didn't know how to do Sunday school right. They didn't know how to do anything right. Because I had been in the same church for seven years, and I knew how to do it right. And then because I was a known quantity saying, you know, because I'd been at this big church, thousand-member church for seven years, they would come up to me, the assistant, executive personal assistant, one of these church guys who was going to this multi-site church, can I talk with you? Sure. We got some problems here. We don't know what to do about, and we don't know how you're doing and telling them at your church. And we'd like for you to give a candid feedback on what you've seen the two Sundays you've been here. See? Good fight, bad fight. And I'd say to him, well, look, you got some things going on here. That's a bad fight. Do it whatever way works. But stand up for the gospel. You see, if our righteousness is in Christ, we don't have to worry as much anymore what other people think. Right? Relax. Your righteousness in Christ is not augmented or diminished by what other people think. Back off. You don't have to win a fight. If you do, it's because you're self-justifying, not grace-justifying. Did you get that? So when I see someone getting a fight about something that's not a good fight, my first thought is they're self-justifying. They have to diminish other people. They have to win in order to feel right. Because their righteousness is in them, not in Christ. You following me? You tracking with me? And that's what Paul is saying. You come here to the next place. He comes down here in Galatians. A two no, I was going to go over here to uh, Galatians 4:17 these people that are leaving you astray are zealous to win you over we just I just love it when someone comes to me or comes to the elder board I've been talking with people and there's a bunch of us that think who you been talking to oh I can't name them how many have you been talking to? Well, a bunch of people. You know, they are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. That's where factions come from. That's where division comes from. I want to win. I want to win. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is from a uh, liberal uh, Anarchist, Eric Hoffer, quote, mass movements can rise and spread without belief in a God, but never without belief in a devil. Mass movements can rise and prosper without belief in a God, but never without belief in a devil. So there had to be a devil, and they made Paul the devil in Galatia. He's the one leading you astray. Get away from him. React to him. Follow us. So, it can be Jews. It can be liberals. It can be conservatives. It can be the president. We got to have a devil to attack. Why? 
because we're self-justifying. We have to be justified. We have to win this. And Paul is telling the Galatians, don't fall for this. You don't need, these were Judaizers saying you have to wash your hands a certain way and worship a certain way and do everything a certain way. Don't say to the person that comes here as a visitor, you have to be like us to be justified because that makes us self-righteous because we are the standard. A culture of grace justification says welcome the way you are because I don't need for you to change for me. My righteousness is in heaven. And there's nothing you can say or do that can change that. That creates a nobility of mind, a graciousness of heart, a culture in a church of grace justification. That's what I define as a healthy church, not a judgmental a church where people don't have to win every argument. If there's a difference between me and you, let's do what you want to do. But if there's a difference between you and what Jesus teaches, we're going to stick to Jesus. Courage to defend the faith, but flexibility to live out the faith. You see that? The good fight. The good fight. And see, it's interesting to note, we'll close with this. Paul says in Galatians 2.11, when Peter came to Antioch, this big Christian church north of Jerusalem, I opposed him to his face because he was in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself with the Gentiles. You know, Jews couldn't meet with Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with, in plumb line, in accord with the truth, I said to Peter in front of them all, if you were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs and Jewish laws? Now, this was bound to happen. There were three central points in the New Testament church. Peter the Jew, leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. And there was this guy named Apollos. He was the great conference speaker. He, could, he was eloquent. He's the guy you want to do a conference speaker. My first church in Minneapolis, we had a great man. He would go around and visit the churches, and, and he would give every new pastor a, a volume of Spurgeon, the great English preacher's sermons, and said, now if you just preach like Spurgeon, you'll be a great preacher. And everybody said, Paul and Peter, if you could just preach like Apollos. I told the guy, we need more Stevens not more busybodies, but he, you know, anyway. Apollos, Peter, Paul, and they got into a Donnybrook. 
a fight for the century. Well, why didn't Paul defer to them? Because this was a gospel issue. This was diminishing justification by faith because Peter and Apollos, because of fear of man, were saying, we're going to backtrack and go back and try to self-justify and diminish the death of Christ and say to these Gentiles, you've got to be like us. And Paul said, I, I confronted them to their face, out in public. You see, courage tempered with flexibility. Graciousness tempered with boldness. Hold the line here, but flex the line here. And it all begins with what? Grace justification. Not self-condemning and feeling guilty. Not self-justifying and feeling the need to diminish the next person. But grace justification. Alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ outside of ourselves, not having a righteousness of my own like the Galatian Judaizers that diminishes and separates, but a righteousness in Christ, secure, untouchable, no way diminished, unchangeable, outside of myself so that now I can say, I don't need to condemn myself. Neither do I need to justify myself. That's done. We can live graciously with one another and not get into the kind of fights that your Galatians did. A culture of grace, a culture of acceptance, a culture of welcome, just the way you Let's pray together. Father, we don't like big fights in the church, but we're glad this one happened in Antioch. So that even Peter, who believed in justification by faith, found himself slipping back into self-justification. Father, it's hard to accept justification is and hard to hold on to. We can only do it day by day and week by week through the grace of the Holy Spirit. And only by encouraging one another to look to Jesus and Jesus only for our justification the way John Bunyan did. Will you give us the grace individually and as a church to do that? We ask it in Christ's name.